My name is Jesse Carey, and you are listening to Listen, my podcast where me and a guest rank and list things in pop culture. It's the whole idea of the show is we make arguing on the internet fun again. And I have a, a really special show for you today. I actually don't have a guest because I'm going to bring be bringing you a lot of guests today. Um, as you're downloading this, 2020 is mercifully coming to a close. And as you know, any any kind of retrospective that you listen to or read this year uh, probably starts off the same way. It's been a really, really tough year. There's no way of getting around that. But I got to say really sincerely um, that doing this podcast and being able to uh, engage with, with you guys as listeners has really, really been a highlight for me. And what I wanted to do today was kind of look back at some of my favorite appearances from guests throughout uh, 2020 uh, and and bring to you a parts of some of my favorite conversations that I had with friends and guests and writers and thinkers who were gracious enough to come on this show and argue about very trivial things, but things that are also a lot of fun to talk about. Um, so let's go ahead and kick things right off with my good buddy, Eddie Koffeltz. Now, Eddie is a podcaster. He hosts an incredible podcast called The New Activist. He also co-hosts the the show Annie and Eddie keep talking with my other good buddy Annie F. Downs. Annie will be making an appearance later on the show. Uh, but I want to start off with Eddie. We had a really great time because we kind of messed with the format a little. Usually we kind of rank things either, you know, starting with our, our top five of something or, or our top three, and we go from the bottom of the list all the way to the top. But Eddie and I had a really interesting idea for his appearance on the show. Instead of ranking SNL cast members, some of our favorites uh, from from you know over the years. We wanted to do an SNL fantasy style draft. Now, Eddie and I, one of the things that we constantly bond over is our love of Saturday Night Live. And part of the reason I had so much fun doing the show with him isn't just because we got to talk about SNL uh, cast members themselves and kind of do this fun draft, but it was also talking about what made SNL so unique. Um, what we love about the show, about the culture of the show, about what the the show has meant to kind of American pop culture, and also sort of what it means to how we interpret comedy, uh, and it's really been a cool, important fixture of pop culture. And that was so that was why it was so fun to have Eddie on. And I want to start off with a clip with Eddie and I uh, talking about kind of the magic of SNL, but also the magic of an SNL superstar, one that kind of is able to break out. And there's no better example of that than one of our favorite cast members, one of the the top picks off the board in our SNL draft, Will Ferrell. Here's me and Eddie talking about SNL. Part of the thing about SNL is the actual product. It's really fun to watch, you Mm know, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's really fun to kind of talk about the morning after, you know, and share and kind of, you know, do the whole thing. But the other thing is sort of the story behind the story, and that's what makes SNL so much fun, too, because it's led by such a strange figure in Lord Michaels, who, from what every interaction you hear from someone who's had to audition in front of him, you know, they all have their Lord Michaels stories, and it sounds like he's just this kind of, honestly, just from what the cast sounds like, he's like this humorless kind of weirdo who just goes with his gut and his gut has been very good. It, it's a weird, it's a weird kind of legacy that Lauren Michaels and the show have. It is very weird. And he's this weird Yoda Zen person because every cast member says a thing that he'll quotes him and his quotes are 
so wise that you realize yeah. like he actually just has this strange ability to craft comedy without necessarily being the funny one himself. Like he genuinely yeah. is perfect for that role. But the the real question I always have with him is what, who could possibly replace that? How, how yeah. is, how does that show continue without him? Because he's so integral to every single part of it. And even part of what was hard looking at the cast list is how poorly the show went when he left or, you know, in the eighties yeah, and then came back. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's just unbelievable what a force he is. And it's such a unique institution, one that I don't know if it'll ever be replicated. And I think I think the thing that makes it so special, and then we'll, we'll kind of yeah. break into the list, yeah. but is like right now, you know, sort of this revolutionary time in media mm-hmm. where anything like appointment viewing other than like sports and presidential debates, yes. like things you you watch at a certain time are, 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 are vanishing, right? right? Everyone's watching stuff on Netflix or whatever streaming service yeah. on demand, right? right? Yeah. It's one of the few cultural institutions that isn't sports or isn't news that people really like to watch live. And that makes it and it might be the last of its kind. Totally. Because all the nightly shows, all the, you know, Jimmy Fallon, they've all been disassembled into YouTube clips, which Mm -hmm. is a model and it works. And I'm great. I'm glad it's on. But nobody's really like staying up and switching over to NBC at 1135. Right. Yeah. But But on Saturday night, they will. They they totally will. Can I tell you my favorite Lorne Michaels lore story real quick? Yeah. Yeah. It's from Will Forte. And he told he shared a story on some random interview that he used to write so, so in the in the rehearsal, Lauren reads Lauren reads the uh, the stage directions. So yeah. typically, that's a fairly boring part, like scene opens, you know, exterior courtroom, interior courtroom, da da da. Right? It's just the stage directions. But yeah, uh, that Will, when he knew he didn't have a sketch, would intentionally write insane sketches with insane insane stage directions to yeah. get Lauren to say things like that were funny. And then, you know, Will Forte begins to share things he made Lauren say, say over the years. And that yeah. to me is like my favorite, just hearing him have to say like, Will begins to throw up on everyone constantly, <laughs> right? Like, or just yeah. <laughs> whatever he makes him say. Um, well, yeah. Yeah. It, it, Cause every cast member has those weird Lauren Michael stories. And, and one, my, yeah. my favorite is Will Ferrell's. So he went to go audition. Right. Yeah, yeah. And you always hear about the auditions. Like yeah. it's the most intimidating thing ever. Cause you're doing your material and it's usually just Lauren Michaels and a couple of the head writers, yeah. you know, yeah. and there aren't just like laughing among like three people. It's yeah. just kind of taking notes and scrutinizing. And Will Ferrell had this great story that he told one time. But did you hear this? Oh, Where yeah. I love it. He's like, he's like staying in New York and, and, and getting ready for the audition. And he's like very, very nervous about how it's going to go. Yeah. And he decided, and, and because the other thing too, is they bring in a lot of people for auditions that just never get called back. Yeah. And everyone's trying to figure out how they can differentiate themselves. And so Will Ferrell said that he just had this funny idea the morning of the morning of the audition. He went to, he, he went and bought a briefcase and went to a toy store and bought a bunch of count fake counterfeit money, like Monopoly money. <laughs> yeah. And it was like $25,000 and he put it in the briefcase. Yeah, yeah. And he went and he did his audition, right? And he's like sweating and does the whole thing. And then he gets called in to meet with Lauren Michaels and Will Ferrell puts the briefcase on the desk and he goes, and he flips it around. He goes, there's $25,000 in this briefcase. I'm going to walk out of the room. I'm expecting that briefcase to be empty. And that means I'm on the show. Like he faked bribed Lauren Michaels. And he said, when he was doing it, he's like, what am I doing? This sounded funny all morning. And now oh, I'm here and it's terrible. That's Will Ferrell's whole career. I'm going to do, I'm going to do a f- movie fully in Spanish. I'm yeah. going to go ahead and play every, like in, 
what is it, eight major league teams for spring training. Yeah. <laughs> not sure if it's going to be funny. Let's hit record and see what happens. His commitment yeah. to the random is my favorite aspect of him. I did, love. Did him. you ever? Did you ever see? And we're. I, I want to talk about some of the cast members too. That's going to be, and I will explain the the rundown. But okay. did you ever see Will Ferrell accept his award at the Mark Twain his Mark yes. Twain Prize? Yes. So, so that, for people, that's a perfect example. Go yeah. tell what happened. Yeah. So the Mark Twain Prize is a very prestigious award that acknowledges, you know, kind of the most significant contributions to culture through comedy. Yeah. And it's like on PBS for a comedy show, it's very stodgy, yeah. right? Like, yes. you, it, like people wear suits and ties. It's not like this big. It, it's like, you know, you go up on stage and there's this, you know, the award itself is a bust of Mark Twain. Yes. You know, it is not like a comedy thing. It, it's like a boring, it's what you you picture, like if you win a prize on like the NPR collection drive, donation drive, yeah, yeah, you yes, get to yes, go yes, to yeah, and yeah. wear a, t- a very boring side <laughs> yeah. So Will Ferrell had a fake Mark Twain bus made out of very like f- breakable uh, material. But, but and so I, I thought it was real. I, nobody thought it yeah. wasn't real. It looked yeah. like he had received and, it. Yeah. And so he goes up and he's, he has his speech and his speech is written directly to Mark Twain. And the setup is he's going to sit there and look into the eyes of the Mark Twain bust and read this entire speech. Yeah. Well, he gets up on the stage and he reads the first few lines and he knocks the bust over accidentally, quote yeah. unquote, and it shatters. And, and audible <laughs> and, gasps in the yeah, room. It really yeah. worked. And he picked up the pieces and put it on the podium and read his whole speech to a pile of broken pieces. It was so funny. But again, his commitment to do oh, the weird. I would be so, so proud of myself because as soon as it knocks over, you hear people gasp and then they start to laugh. I'd be so proud of myself. I'd laugh, too. But yeah. he is so committed. It's unbelievable. His level <laughs> yeah. of commitment to a joke, well, even and especially when it's going really bad. When it's yeah. going poorly, I feel like he doubles down on, on his desire to make it weird. As I stare at this magnificent bust of Mark Twain, <laughs> I'm reminded of how humbled I am to receive such an honor and how I vow to take very special care of it. Um, <laughs> I will never let it out of my sight. I will find a place of honor in my house for this Magnificent bust. If my children try to touch it or even look at it, I will beat them. Yeah. Well, the uh, another good moment, and I'll play a clip from this in a second here uh, uh, for listeners, is one year at the ESPYs, he's ra- he randomly accepted award on behalf of Tiger Woods. Yes, yes. And, and, and it, it, but not as Will Ferrell, yeah. as Tiger Woods. Yes. And, and it was, is everything he does is funny. Here, here's a clip of that. Uh, you know, people are always asking me, Tiger, uh, how do you do it? And my answer is shut up. Uh, I ask the questions around here. I'm Tiger Woods. Well, what can I say? It's been, a, it's been a great year. Clearly, I am the best golfer alive today. And arguably the greatest of all time. Uh, but as I look around this room tonight, I realize that this isn't about being the best golfer. It's about being the best athlete alive. 
Well, speaking of really great TV comedies, I think what has become one of my all-time favorite TV shows is The Office. Um, it is, it's really kind of a perfect sitcom. It's got the right amount of heart, but also just really great comedy. It's aged really well. Um, it's sort of the go-to binge. It's sort of been, I know it's leaving Netflix uh, in 2020, but it's sort of been my Netflix comfort food. If I can't find anything else to watch, fire up a couple episodes of The Office, and I always feel better. And that's why I was so excited and honor to have on a really, really important figure in the show. Now, if you watch the show, you'll probably just recognize him as the actor who plays Toby Flinderson, uh, Michael's arch nemesis on the show. But Paul Lieberstein is so much more than an actor. He was actually a, a writer for the show. He was actually the head writer for a while. Um, but uh, along with being a writer and producer, uh, Paul Lieberstein actually also served as a showrunner. So he's a top dog at the show for a long time. And he agreed to come on Listed, and we talked through some of our favorite episodes episodes of the show. And uh, what was so fun about that isn't just kind of debating which which episodes work the best, but it was also kind of getting Paul's behind the scenes insights of some of my favorite episodes and some of my favorite scenes like this one where we talk about an incredible scene in an episode called The Injury. The one that I, I think I've laughed the, the hardest at is the episode is the season two. It's The Injury. And uh, I want to break down the episode a little, but the scene that, I mean, I, I, I in prepping for this, I kind of rewatched some of these again. And the scene that I honestly, like, it, it, it is just such a, like a brilliant dance of like deadpan of uncomfortableness and sort of like off screen physical comedy. And it involves Toby, Ryan and Michael. And Michael has, has has cooked his foot in the George Foreman grill and is in the bathroom. Uh, Toby and Ryan are on the other side of the door. And you hear Michael wedge himself. <laughs> even just talking about it, I laugh. When Michael says, bring a wet towel and I need him to clean me up. And and you have this like over the top. It wasn't like cartoonish, but you could hear like splashing water and these big grunt, <laughs> these these grunts of pain. But then you just see the sheer uncomfortableness on Ryan's face when he's like sitting <laughs> in Ryan. But then you have Toby just deadpan and says, "Ryan's dead. You only grilled your foot." Like it was, it was like this perfect juxtaposition of three styles of comedy. <laughs> What what happened? I fell off the toilet. I'm caught between the toilet and the wall. What do you need? No, not you. Someone else. Get Pam. I think Pam's gonna want to come into the men's room. Get Ryan. Oh, he needs to lift me, and he needs to clean me up a little bit. Bring a wet towel. Ryan is uh, dead. No, he's not. Dead. I just saw him. No. Can't. Can you just get up yourself? I, you only grilled your foot. No, oh, forget it. I'll just get up myself. No! Ow! Oh! Oh, God! What was that? What was playing that scene like? That was really fun. That was so early on still that, you know, things were still in flu. Nothing was set, you know? I, I had no idea how, how BJ was going to play that. Yeah. You know, and we do it, we do it, obviously... Steve wasn't, you know, in the bathroom doing yeah. his thing right then. Yeah. He was probably giving us lines from behind the door. But yeah. no, I don't I don't think we knew what was coming. And I and a bunch of those lines I think were were um improvised too. Yeah. 
Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it works so well because, like I said, it was three distinct styles of comedy that you put in this weird scenario of boss with you know a burned foot getting jammed behind a toilet, and like I said, just like Toby's, like this is my life. Like you see so much in Toby's face yeah. at this point, like. This is literally what I come to this office to do every day, and I have to deal with this. I feel like you really nailed so uh, much just in that look. Yeah, yeah. You, so we, so we. It's it's weird because like the writer part is is like Ryan's dead. Yeah, you know? yeah, um, yeah. Then I'm like, okay, that'll be that'll be, that'll all be funny. We all, yeah, I think that's funny. Put it in the script, and then um, I mean, I didn't I didn't write that episode, but um, we, we we all worked on everything a little bit so i don't know i i can't remember the original scene if it was very close to it or not but in any case you get on set and you have you have this this line ryan's dead and then you're you have then i'm a person and i'm saying ryan's dead so i know that so like i didn't know i had to immediately act like i'm taking that back like how how bad a decision it was to say that (laughs) But what do you just that say? was always a fun thing to try yeah. to take the lines and then ad- I guess that's just the the, the actor's journey, you know, yeah. which, is, which was new to me. All right. Like I mentioned earlier, I wanted to bring you a clip from my conversation with Annie F. Downs, who is a, a an amazing writer, an amazing speaker, an incredible podcaster. Uh, she runs the That Sounds Fun podcast network. She is involved in so much stuff. Annie, along with being one of my friends, is, is legit one of my heroes. She is just an awesome person. Um, and it was really fun to have her on because she actually pitched me a really funny idea for Listed. Uh, again, we kind of switched up the format for her. And what we did is instead of just ranking HGTV shows, which I figured Annie would really like, because if you know anything about Annie, she has a really cool design aesthetic. So I figured, you know, HGTV stuff is right up her alley. She she conceded that she didn't actually watch HGTV, which is a huge surprise to me. So she wanted us to rank Food Network hosts. Unfortunately, I've never really seen a Food Network show. And so what we did is we decided that I would give her four different HDTV shows to watch. And I would watch any four Food Network shows that she would want me to watch. And we would both come on and rank our favorite in that series of four. Now, I part of the reason I wanted to pull this clip, one, it was a blast. Me and Annie always have fun when we chat. Uh, but this segment of the interview you're about to hear actually led to my first bad review. List its first, it may be its only one star review. I may have a couple uh, people that haven't agreed with some of the rankings, but this one was uh, the most vocal one star review I've ever received. <laughs> and I'm going to, here's the thing. Here's why I pulled this clip. I'd have no resentment or animosity. Part of putting content out on the internet is, uh, you know, you, you open yourself up to criticism. That's okay. Like I said, the conceit of this show is we're arguing about the internet and ranking things. I do, I do want to read the comment, the one star comment that somebody left, and I'll play you a clip, and you can decide if it was worthy of one star. Here's the comment somebody left: close-minded and arrogant. Jesse's narrative about cowboys in his episode with Annie is insulting. Jesse is obviously a CNN-loving city boy with no clue how rural America really lives. Now listen, I did say that real cowboys don't eat wedge salads. 
with diet ranch dressing after a long day on the range. I did suggest that they eat beans out of tin cans over a campfire and a cold sarsaparilla. I don't even know what sarsaparilla is. I was just goofing around. It was all in good fun. Uh, But hey, if you want to leave a review for a list that I welcome it, even if it's an occasional one star, hey, listen to clip. Maybe the listener had a point. Uh, Maybe I am just a CNN-loving city boy, which, by the way, what a great, weird, like, insult. CNN lover. (laughs) Here is. It's part of my conversation with my buddy, Annie F. Downs. So for people that have not seen this show, like the, 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 the whole construct is uh, Re, the host, and, uh, and her husband, Lad, which... One, You're the only person who doesn't know who this is, by the way. So, one, whose name is Lad, okay? <laughs> it threw me off. Right? I was like, I couldn't have heard that right. It can't be Lad. It can't be L-A-D-D. That's not name. It is. So, That's such a cowboy name. Yeah, well, the whole the whole conceit of the of the show is it's it's food for cowboys. Like that's what she kind of opens the show with saying, "I'm going to make food that is just, that will feed a hungry cowboy." Annie, cowboys eat old tins of beans and sarsaparilla, <laughs> and if they if they're feeling fancy, they go to saloon and eat like horse meat or something. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was way too it, it was way too fancy. Like the the wait, what the, did you? What was the episode? What was the trope that you said? Okay, so so it started with like the a plot was her making this big meal for for Lad's birthday. I happened oh, to I stumbled upon two birthday episodes. By oh, the way. congratulations! That, uh, so so they were making a meal and it was very involved and it, it took way too much time. But you know, involved a wedge salad. But, Tell me what Cowboys eating a wet goes in order as a wedge salad. <laughs> like it lost it. Yeah. I no. know I know some that just spent all day, you know, wrangling cattle. And it's like, man, I can't wait to get back home and get that wedge salad <laughs> with that diet ranch. He loves that diet ranch hollowed out with some uh, apple smoked bacon, you know, like it, Well, Drew Holcomb is an incredible singer and songwriter. Uh, Honestly, just uh, everything that that he does, whether it's a solo project or with his kind of band, Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors, it is just incredible music, really thoughtful, really well written. Um, He's actually, you know, I think Rolling Stone called him one of America's most popular Americana artists. Um, That's why I was really excited to have him on. And I wanted him to kind of rank some of his favorite folk songs of all time. Now, as you can imagine, any list involving folk songs has to have an appearance by Bob Dylan. Um, that's why this conversation was so much fun because I get to get Drew Holcomb's perspective on one of Bob Dylan's most endearing songs, Blowing in the Wind. Here's part of that conversation with Drew Holcomb. While it'd be impossible to say like there's one particular song, I think any any list, to like any artist list in this would have to be honest and put a Dylan song in there. You know? Yeah, yeah. I'm interested to see which one you picked because I have one sitting at the uh, the top of mine, and I, I'm very curious yeah. because really there's so many from his catalog that that you can choose. Yeah, from. I mean, you really could go a million different ways. I, I went sort of obvious because I think there's yeah, I think "Blowing in the Wind" is like is is yeah. like the song that when you associate Dylan with his sort of folk phase before. I mean, he did kind of make a particular turn towards rock and roll. Yeah. You know, the Newport Folk Festival, which obviously I think that rock and roll is folk music also, but yeah. that's a whole nother like, yeah, you know, faster tempo and electric instruments sort of deal. Yeah. 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 That's it. But I think that this song um, is such a great sort of critique of his role as a protest song singer while mm. also still being a protest song. 
Yeah. You know, like it, I think yeah. there's a lot of really good self-reflection in it, you know, like this idea of like, you know, I'm going to talk about, you know, how many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? Like he's clearly making like some sort of anti-war sentiment here. Yeah. But also like the answer is blown in the wind. The answer is blown in the wind. How many years can a mountain exist before it's washed to the sea? Um, you know, how many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free? I mean, that's like, that is punchy. How many, yeah. Think about that just on its own. How many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free? I mean, thinking about that in terms of like talking about civil rights and, yeah. and Jim Crow and it's like, wow. Um, you know, and so, and but then did not give an answer. You know, the answer is blown yeah. away. I mean, it's, it's sort of nihilistic, but I, I love the song. And I think it's sort of Dylan's. The other thing about Dylan is that everyone who's come after Dylan, like has, his, 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 used it you know has 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 used his music has copied him has yeah. tried to emulate him and anybody who says otherwise is like not honest with themselves at all oh for sure and and, and i think a lot of artists aren't even aware of it because yeah. you yeah. know there there are so many Dylan there are so many songs that are in sort of the american pop you know catalog that you know, the casual music listener probably doesn't realize like, oh, all along the watchtower is a Dylan song or or any number of songs that yeah, or even became like more Adele, famous. You know, to make you feel my love, you know, it's like yeah. he even has these like pop songs that yeah are like just so good. And I, I honestly think he's still making great records. His newest yeah. one is so good. Yeah. And to to have that sort of longevity and and influence is I mean, he is the and he also is probably the one that made folk music popular, you know? Yeah. I mean, oh, for sure. Yeah. It was sort of not a big like radio thing before that. And now, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of ubiquitous in the pop culture landscape. His, his yeah. influence is all over the place. Isn't how many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? All right, so if you've been following me for a number of years, you'll know that uh, I still, I'm still honored to be able to, to co-host the Relevant Podcast. Um, and one of my original co-hosts, one of, one of the OG Releventers was Adam Smith. And Adam is a writer and a journalist, and he's also one of the funniest dudes I know, one of the funniest and smartest dudes I know. So if you have someone on who's super, super smart, uh, there's only one thing you can do, and that is have them rank unintentionally hilarious action movies, many of which are from the 80s and 90s. Um, again, we try to find, we try to mix topics up here, you know, get, get a little trivial, get a little heavy sometimes, but uh, me and Adam's discussion about crazy, unintentionally hilarious uh, uh, action movies led to a discussion of a film called Hard Ticket to Hawaii, a 1987 uh, pseudo cult classic mainly because it lives on in the form of youtube clips um but it was a really fun discussion about movies that are really taking massive swings and even though they're not comedies they're still really really funny here's me and adam talking about hard ticket to hawaii i'm going to start with an action movie that i'm very excited to talk to you about and i actually sent you a clip of this film 
just to set the tone for uh, for this podcast. So my number four most unintentionally hilarious action movie is a film called Hard Ticket to Hawaii. And Adam, there is a lot to unpack here. Hard Ticket to Hawaii. It has it all. The awesome, pristine beauty of the land. The warm caress of perfect beaches. The tantalizing wetness of the Blue Pacific. Hawaii. It's a great place to visit. But you wouldn't want to die there. Four of America's finest ready and willing to pay the price for paradise. Uh, let me let me read the official synopsis of Hard Ticket to Hawaii, which is a mid-80s action movie. And the opening, the opening screen, by the way, and they still do this, but I feel like this was big in the 80s. It would show like a cool graphic and the name of the studio. The name of the studio that made this film was called Malibu Bay Film. Okay. Like right then, I know it's going to be good. Yeah, exactly. Because what they should have called it is money laundering operation. <laughs> the, because- the production value is, you, 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 I'm very curious to know what the budget was and where that money was spent. Yeah, well, I can tell you, I can tell you where the money came from. <laughs> it's definitely cartels. Yeah. Well, speaking of cartels, here's the official. Uh, this is the official description from IMDb for the film Hard Ticket to Hawaii, which I'm assuming most people haven't seen. <laughs> Two drug enforcement agents are killed on a private Hawaiian island. Okay, uh, not a bad setup. Okay. Private island. Donna and Tyron. Two operatives for the agency accidentally intercept the delivery of diamonds intended for the drug lord, Seth Romano, who takes exception and tries to get them back. Soon, other agency operatives get involved and a full-scale fight to the finish ensues, complicated here and there by an escaped snake made deadly by toxic waste. There's a lot going on in Hard Ticket to Hawaii, Adam. There's diamonds. There's at least three movies in here. <laughs> There are diamonds. There are drug cartels. There's some sort of institution called the agency. Uh, and there is a snake that is, it, you know, because another in the film, the snake is bit by rats who have cancer because of toxic waste. And that's how it becomes toxic. Okay. Well, I mean, that, that tracks scientifically. <laughs> yeah. I see what they did there, obviously. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's, you know, any any Tom, Dick, or Harry walking down the street will tell you about a time that that happened. Well, it, it, and the other thing before I jump to one of the opening scenes in the film that that we're going to discuss in, in depth is the the music for this is a Yacht Rock original banger called Hard Ticket to Hawaii. And the, the chorus <laughs> is literally <laughs> Hard Ticket to Hawaii. It's not paradise all of the time. And it's just like a, an original Yacht. I just appreciate I think a lot of the budget went there. <laughs> Here's a clip. Well, another one of my good friends is Shauna Nequist. Now, Shauna is a really gifted writer, a speaker, and memoirist. Seriously, her books are are life-changing reads. Her thoughts on relationships and spirituality and faith are, are really, really unique and profound, and I can't encourage you enough to check out 
uh, her books. Uh, that's why I thought when I had her her on, it'd be really fun to talk about some of her favorite memoirs, some of the books that she's read from writers uh, from that kind of personal perspective that have affected her the most. And I was really excited when she wanted to come on and talk about uh, the book Memorial Drive. Now, uh, this is just a profound book, as Shauna explains in this clip. It's from poet laureate Natasha Trethway. And I was, you know, just really excited to not only get Shauna's insight on, on a, such a profound book like this, but also what it takes to write a transparent and really moving and compelling memoir. Here's part of the conversation with Shauna Nequist. It's um, Memorial Drive by okay. Natasha Trethaway. Cool. What, t- tell, what's, the, what's the premise? Uh, so she is a woman. Uh, I, she's a poet, I believe, by profession and a professor. And she is writing, uh, her memoir is about She's in her probably her 50s now, and she's writing about when she was 19 years old when her mother was murdered by mm. her stepfather. Oh my gosh. And so it's a story about a specific event, but it's also about, you know, what it means to be a daughter and to yeah. have a mother and to experience loss. It's also um it uh there are uh, she is biracial and grew up in Mississippi. And so there are all sorts of like social and political and race-related aspects to it. The mm. quality of her writing is just absolutely beautiful. And so she's she's doing a thing where, you know, she's looking at her own childhood memories in such a specific, yeah. beautifully written way. But then it also has all of these other implications for what it means to be a Southerner and a woman and a person yeah. who's biracial and a daughter. It is absolutely fantastic. Man, I'll have to check it out. It's funny because a lot of those same themes, like someone who dealt with like violence in a kind of a domestic situation, biracial, um, you know, kind of in a complicated time was, and it, this didn't make my list, but it's a fantastic book is Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. Where I have he heard, was, yeah. He, he was born in, it's funny because a lot of those similar themes kind of, uh, you know, experienced kind of profound domestic violence at a young age, but also grew up, you know, kind of in, you know, the apartheid era of South Africa, where, you know, being biracial, you know, it was actually a crime for his mother and father to, to be together. Now, so when was Memorial Drive? When is it set, did you say? Um, well, it, it was written, for, it was released fairly recently, but it was... 30 years ago that this crime okay. happened. Yeah. Now, so the, the book is set 30 years ago and, you know, you said a lot, there's some social and racial themes in it. Mm-hmm. Being in the moment we are now where I feel like those, you know, a lot of, um, you know, racial justice issues are back in the forefront of conversations and reading from a perspective of 30 years ago, how did it kind of, did it, did it not challenge, but did it kind of put today's kind of um, uh, social and racial tensions kind of in a different light at all for you? Well, I would say, I would say two things. I would say, you know, um, it's really important to me to be a really a good learner and listener right now. Um, yeah. I think for those of us who have not experienced um, racism and who live with the privilege of our um, whiteness, it's important for us to be learners and listeners. And the way I learn the primary way I engage with um, is through books. So yeah. like whenever I want to learn about something, I start with a book list and I start asking, especially people of color in my life, like, what should I be re- reading? What sh- what's yeah. kind of required reading for this moment? And so I would say this falls right within kind of the center of that. I just want to be learning more stories that are outside of my own experience. Yeah. And then I would say you're exactly right. Um, 
part of the privilege um, of whiteness is the naivete of thinking things have been better than they were. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I didn't experience it every day. Um, and this book, um, among many others, really is helping me understand there's so much that I thought that I assumed in my naivete was resolved or was better than it was. Yeah. And this is a really important education for me in understanding. Uh, yeah, the, the the darkness and the horror that our country, even our recent history. Yeah, I mean, certainly our present, but also our quite recent history. It's 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 much worse, you know, for lack of a better term, than I kind of in my pretty sheltered world had understood. Right now, my favorite stand-up comedian, my favorite working comedian, has got to be Nate Bargatze. Now, if you're not familiar with Nate, uh, well, first. Uh, shame on you. No, I'm just kidding. There's no shame in this podcast. <laughs> but if you're not familiar with Nate, hey, go check out. He has a couple things on Netflix. So he has one special on Netflix called The Tennessee Kid, which is an hour long special uh, that came out earlier this year. One of the highlights of 2020 for me, one of my favorite releases. But he also stars in sort of the pilot episode of a Netflix series called The Stand Ups. And he does kind of a half hour set, which is referenced in the full hour. So if you aren't familiar with Nate, those are really great starting points. Nate has such good, not just great comic timing and delivery, but the subject of his comedy is always really funny because it's everyday stuff and he doesn't try to get too heavy with stuff. Nate kind of knows his lane and he knows his audience and that's what's so fun about him. Nate is the 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 kind of stereotypical everyman comedian, but he channels his kind of insecurities and self-deprecating ideas into really, really funny and relatable and breezy and honestly laugh out loud comedy when i have friends over after you know we can have friends back in our homes again <laughs> one of the things that i'm really looking forward to doing is putting on that netflix special and just watching people get a get a good laugh because i've watched it so many times over and over and it still really really makes me laugh now uh i wanted to have nate on but i was kind of on the fence and i was trying to think about what we should talk about but if you follow nate or listen to his podcast nate land you'll know that he's a big fan of the show Seinfeld. Uh, that was really cool because I grew up on Seinfeld. Like literally, we watched Seinfeld not just weekly when it was in when it was still like new episodes on NBC, like must see TV back in the day, but it was one of those things that there was a while there where Seinfeld was on syndication and you could probably watch like six episodes a night between it playing before like Jeopardy and then reruns on TBS. And so I wanted to have Nate come on and rank Seinfeld episodes. And he was not only gracious enough to do that, to kind of talk through some of our favorite episodes of all time, but also really dig into kind of the secret sauce of the show from the perspective of a stand-up comedian. You know, obviously Jerry Seinfeld on the show is is a stand-up, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, Nate's career has sort of uh, mirrored Jerry Seinfeld's in real life. You know, Nate is a regular. He's on The Tonight Show a couple times a year. Uh, he's actually had several pilots that networks have looked at. So not only can he relate a lot to the character Jerry Seinfeld on the show, he also has a really unique perspective about how to kind of deconstruct the comedy of the show and really kind of dig into what makes Seinfeld so successful and so unique. Uh, so here is Nate Bargatze talking about Seinfeld. Are you a fan of Always Sunny? Are you? Do you, do you ever watch? I've never Always seen it. No. Okay. No. So I know so, it's great. Yeah, it, it, and it has a similar dynamic in that the characters. Well, there's no sentimentality, right? Like mm -hmm. it, you know, Larry David had the famous thing of no hugs. 
Like, yeah. you know, there yeah. was never going to be a moment where you're like, oh, they really learned something or the character yeah. improved. It's like, no, no, they're terrible people. And that's the whole point of this. Why it's funny. Yeah. I feel like this is kind of uh, an episode where Sonny kind of took some notes because all of their characters are always scheming of, you know, kind of ways to get wealthy. And they're also just awful, petty people who don't even really trust each other. And that was one of the beauties of this episode is that those like features of the characters are played for such great comedy. Yeah. 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 That no hugging is a wonderful thing in an uh, episode. Cause I mean, you, you really see this show. There's a lot of, I mean, yeah, there's some time there's, I mean, they do some stuff that there's some bad people, you know, like yeah. <laughs> some of the stuff that they do, but to do that and be likable is pretty yeah. crazy. Cause I mean, there's a great chance that this show could not work and everybody hates it. Yeah. You know, because you're just like, I don't, cause the, like the office, is the opposite. You know, you yeah. had the Jim and Pam storyline is, I mean, one of my favorite storylines ever, just seeing yeah. them, if they're going to get together and how all that worked out. Uh, so yeah, they, I mean, they just went in that other way and it, it truly worked, but that's the, it fits what they do. It's the comedy of what they do. And that's what comedy is, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what I feel like I've loved shows like Parks and Rec and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. there's been a handful of other good sitcoms, but I, I can't remember any other show. Like I said, Always Sunny, they, they sometimes they take it a little too far. It gets a little too dark, you know, mm -hmm. but, yeah. but Seinfeld was right in that sweet spot because it was around at the same time, like Friends was on in the same yeah. like must see TV kind of yeah. two hour block on NBC where Friends, it did have those kind of romantic lines and you were kind of rooting for things. With Seinfeld, it was just jokes. It, it, yeah. it was just comedy. I feel like that's kind of why it works so well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, if you've listened to the show for a while, you know that one of the kind of recurring themes along with pop culture that, that comes up a lot is, is things, the intersection of culture and science. I love science. I was always terrible at science in school. I'm just not kind of like the left brain, right brain things. Math and science, I was never really good at, um, you know, when it came to like literature and, and PE. That was more, uh, <laughs> that was more my speed in high school. Uh, but, that's why I was really excited to have Wendy Zuckerman on. Now, Wendy hosts a show called Science Versus from Gimlet Media, which, by the way, all the Gimlet podcasts are really, really good. They are at the top of the podcast game. Uh, I really admire what they're able to do with their shows. But what makes Science Versus so cool, and I mentioned this to Wendy on the, when she was on, is you know they're kind of able to channel what someone like Carl Sagan was able to do or what Radio Lab regularly does or even you know if for like a kid version of like a Bill Nye or Beekman back in the day which is they take these sort of complicated ideas these kind of scientific principles that may be hard to digest but they put them in this sort of narrative framework and they tell stories around science so that even if the science itself is a little beyond your your comprehension at least the concepts can be really compelling and show why the study of science is so important. She's a fantastic storyteller and also just finds like really interesting things to talk about when it comes to science. And that kind of just, you know, I think a lot of people picture a lot of the conversations being kind of boring. But, you know, when I had her on to talk about some of her favorite experiments that have happened in 2020, uh, she wanted to talk about a, a discovery involving the platypus. Now, the platypus 
is probably the most hilarious animal in creation. Uh, it has a duck bill. It can fly. It doesn't know what it is. It's, it's sort of like an algamation of a lot of animals. It looks like if you took a kid's just like crayon drawing of what they think a cool animal would be and brought it to life. That's a platypus. But as Wendy Zuckerman explains, the host of Science Versus, uh, the platypus is way more interesting than we even thought, thanks to a recent discovery in 2020 about how scientists discovered that <laughs> that platypuses actually grow when they're under UV light. So fascinating conversation. Here is Wendy Zuckerman. Okay, number three, I, um, I'm going to take a look at platypuses. So going from um, the mind-bending world of, of physics uh, to the to the duck bills platypus. Now, now, now you you grew up in Australia, and so so for American listeners who know of a duck bill platypus but has never really seen one in the wild, d- describe why, what makes them so interesting. Oh, they're just it's as if nature just put a bunch of weird stuff together in a blender <laughs> and then just spat out this animal. I mean, it's got a duck bill. It's got um, it's got like fur that's a little bit like. I want to say a beaver. Um, it ha- the 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 males have a venomous spur, um, oh. I, which is fabulous. And then this year, scientists discovered uh, that these animals, when you when you spray or when you shine UV light on them, they glow blue. Wow, uh, which is so cool uh, because we didn't know this because normally their their coat is like a sort of pooey brown colour. Yeah. Um, and the, the story of how scientists discovered this, and it was it was very fun because we we reported on this the week of the election because uh, the, the research came out pretty soon, uh, like around that time, and, you know, during the election, for everyone, no matter your politics, a very stressful time, middle of COVID yeah. um, as well. To and say the least. To yeah. say, <laughs> yes, yes. And, yeah. And so when this new story came out, we just thought, oh, my gosh, this is so beautiful. That From what we were talking about at the beginning of, of, our, of our chat, you know, this idea that while politics is swirling around to drain, science is uncovering that the, the platypus glows blue. Um, and, and so the story of how the researchers uh, d- discovered this, it was a team – um, from Wisconsin. And it was quite fun because we spoke to Paula Anik, um, who was the lead author, but she said that it, it all started when uh, one of her colleagues was, it all started with without the platypus. I should do some nice signposting here. It was when, when one of her colleagues was out in the woods and I, I think he was studying lichen or something. And, mm. and lichen becomes much easier to find when you're using a UV light. And so he's like walking around the woods in Wisconsin with this like UV light and and then all of a sudden he sees this flash of pink and he's like what and it turned out it was a squirrel and a squirrel also has has this effect which is called biofluorescing wow and we didn't know that a squirrel biofluoresces pink um and so from there the researchers were like what other animals do this? Uh, you know, this this is weird. Like, and so they drove out and they took some took some apples and cookies. They truly did, uh, being the good nerds that they are, um, and went on a on a field trip to the Field Museum uh, of Natural History in Chicago. 
And the way they uh, that Paula told us this story was super fun. It was, you know, they they turned off all the lights at the at the museum at the room that they were in, um, and had their headlamps on and were sneaking around. And they were they were out to look specifically, and they had their UV lights, um, and they wanted to to see whether the platypus biofluoresces because the platypus is this like weird. It's like a, it's just a weird animal. It's a it's a yeah. mammal, but it lays eggs. Um, not to mention all the weird stuff I mentioned before. And so they were like, if a weird, like like from an evolutionary perspective, if this like weird, you know, outsider animal biofluoresces, this would really open the door to to other animals. And then so you know, with the in the cover of darkness, they they flash the light, and bam, you know, this bright sort of greeny blue comes out at them. And, and you know, and since then, so since this this paper was reported, um, the the producer Nick Del Rose uh, has been following it very closely. He was the one who sort of discovered this for our team. Um, and he gave me this big list of all these other animals that are biofluorescing now. So the Tassie devil biofluoresces um, blue wow. as well around certain parts of its faces. Um, wombats, bilbies, um, which are bilbies like a small um, kangaroo. So basically, you know, all, all these famous Aussie animals are just out there biofluorescing. It's like it's just like all of the the cool Aussie animals are like going to a rave together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they look normal at the daytime, but you turn the lights out and turn the black light on. You're like, oh, these guys are ready to party now. So, so fluorescent fluorescent platypuses and a number of other animals. Is there a, like a biological or evolutionary reason for them to to glow, or is that something that scientists are still trying to determine? It's it's a great question. So so we we asked Paula what what this might be used for, and um, the the classic things always come up. One is it's a sexy thing to attract a mate. Um, you know that that's always the the one you hear first whenever they're like, oh, that's a weird pretty thing you can see. Yeah, look what I can do. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, ah. sort of like the rave thing. Like, hey, look at that. that one's really, that one's shining purple. <laughs> right? Yeah. Much like glow sticks. Exactly. Yeah, it's all for yeah. the sexiness. <laughs> um, so one idea is, is attracting mates. Another idea is it might be used as a cloak. Um, like perhaps if if predators can see UV light, maybe this might confuse them somehow. Yeah. Um, so that that's another idea. But, but, it's unclear at this point because we didn't know this happened. And so it's just like step one, it happens. Step two, yeah. why? And another sort of fun thing is when I asked Paula, do platypuses or now wombats and Tassie devils, do they see each other as blue? Like, because we obviously said it was brown, but I'm like, oh, from the yeah. platypus's perspective, what does this mean? And she was like, we don't know because wow. – but that's such a it's a cool idea that anytime I, I feel like we are reminded of the fact that the way we perceive the world is not an objective way that the world is, is very yeah. fun and very humbling. Yeah. All right. So back in the day, I also used to host a podcast called Relevant is Doing a Sports Podcast with uh, with Steve Carter, who was on listed earlier this year, along with Sam Acho. Now, Sam Acho has he spent like a decade in the NFL. He's an incredible speaker and an amazing writer. He's got a new book out that I definitely encourage everyone to get. It's called Let the World See You. Now, uh, Sam, part of the reason I want to have him on is not only is Sam a brilliant guy, like seriously, when he was in the league, he was constantly recognized as one of like the smartest 
smartest dudes in the NFL. Um, seriously, the guy can like repeat whole lines of like Jeffrey Chaucer poems just from memory. It, it's incredible. Sam's Sam's a brilliant dude, um, but he's also a really insightful guy too when it comes to pop culture. And I wanted him to bring a unique perspective because. If you guys obviously have listened to the podcast, I love movies, I love TV and music, uh, but I also am a big sports fan. And, you know, so I'm a sucker for sports movies. And I know they're kind of hit or miss. Like they, they can be overly Disney and kind of cheesy, but if they're done right, then, you know, they're really compelling. And football adjacent media. So like, you know, QB one or, uh, Friday night lights, you know, have really kind of transcended culture and brought in people and audiences who aren't, you know, only fans of football, but I want to have Sam on to rank kind of football related TV, TV shows and movies. And one of the ones that Sam wanted to talk about, and I was so excited to get his insight on is the show hard knocks. Now, it's an HBO series, and kind of the, the construct of the show is before every NFL season kicks off, a camera crew follows one team through training camp, through the preseason, and uh, right up until the kickoff at the beginning of the season. Now, why this is so compelling, if you're not a big fan of the actual game of football, uh, there's actually a lot of really interesting relationship dynamics that, that, that happen there, because during the training camp and preseason period of kind of the, the football calendar is when coaches, GMs, and, and uh, owners decide what players are actually going to make the team. And so when you watch Hard Knocks, you see a lot of this drama because these guys who are in training camp for, for an NFL team, they've worked their entire life to get there. I mean, literally, ever since they were little kids, their whole life has been almost singularly focused on making it to an NFL roster. And their performance during the preseason or during a training camp will determine whether they actually get to see that le- that dream come to fruition or if that dream of being a professional football player is ending right in front of them. It makes for some really, really compelling TV. Uh, like I said, even if you don't like the game of football. But having Sam on, I was able to get a player's perspective on what makes Hard Knocks so authentic and such riveting TV. Here is Sam Acho talking about Hard Knocks. I remember in 2013, my third year in the NFL, my third year with the Cardinals, my first year under new coach, Bruce Arians. Yeah. And I remember we had a new coach and it was, it was this mass exodus. About half the team had been, was relieved of their duties yeah. as he came in. He was bringing in his own guys. 90% of the coaching staff was gone. He brought in his own coaching staff. And I was one of the few guys that remained. And I remember just trying to go and show my stuff and doing the whole deal. And there was one guy, I'm looking at his, I can see his face. I'm forgetting his name right now. He does real estate or he does like financial advising right now. But one of my teammates, he was just stressed out. I'm like, man, what's going on? He's like, I don't know, man. I just don't have a good feeling. I feel like I'm going to get cut and I just don't feel good. And I was like, dude, you're going to be fine. Like, don't even worry about it. Just, just chill. Like, you'll yeah. be fine. And he's like, man, and, but he's like, I just don't know. I was like, dude, don't worry about it, man. Come on, let's go out fine. Let's go out practice. Like, let's, 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 let's kind of cheer up. It's like, I got you, I got you. So we go to practice, and as we're on our way to practice, he gets called into a coach's office. Oh, no. And I didn't know, you know, people get, they don't get caught in all the time, but it was one of those things where it was like, okay, like, I had to go to practice, and he was going to the coach's office. Yeah. And then, like, as we're on the way, I kind of slip, I kind of, you know, slip, take like a bathroom break, right? So I kind of yeah. wait to see what happens. Yeah. I don't see him leave, but I see the head coach. As, as, as he walks into the bathroom, 
And he was like, man, this is, this is the toughest job. And I'm like, oh, what are you talking about? He's like, man, cutting people, man. I hate it. It's one of the hardest things to do. You know, bad day for me. You yeah. know? And I'm like, oh, crap, this dude. You just, And I go oh. out and I see like on the waiver wire, my friend who I just, oh, oh, no. you know, so it's real. Yeah. It's, and even for me, like I remember another, another time walking in, one guy, what happened? It was the last preseason game and I was supposed to play, but I had an injury the game before, so yeah. I didn't play. And one of my teammates played instead and he played, I guess he didn't play so well and he ended up getting cut. I didn't know he got cut until he walked into the training room the day we we're all waiting. And he said, he said, Hey, thanks a lot. I'm like, what do you mean? He said, you're the reason I got cut. What? I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? He said, it, it, I said, how do you even know? He's, he said, my agent just called me and I, I wasn't even supposed to play in that game because you got hurt. I had to go play. And then they released me. So thanks a lot, Sam. <laughs> like, oh my, you know, like, well, and, maybe if you would have played better. You know, right, yeah. right. And, 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 and I mean, there were t- and those are stories of other people, but there were times where I got released as well. And it was, yeah. you know, I remember being in Buffalo and, and getting released from the Bills and just being at the bottom of the roster and everybody's hanging out, laughing and joking. And they're doing yeah. their introductions each day. Coach will call on a different guy to tell their story or whatever. Yeah. And I remember never, get, never getting called on. I'm like, oh, Probably I'm probably not gonna read this oh, this year, you know. Man. And so, so yeah, it's real. So hard knocks, hard knocks really could be could move up my list, but yeah. that's that's why I got it at three. All right. Well, hey, look, that will do it for this best of kind of look back at some of my favorite interviews over the year. And this was really hard to narrow down. I was going through all the episodes that I was privileged enough to do this year. I had so many great guests, so many great topics, so many great conversations and credit to my guests. So if there are any, if there are any on here that, that you enjoyed that I didn't mention, my apologies, but um, hey, go back in the feed and, and dust off some of the old, some of your old favorites or hit me up on Twitter at Jesse Carey and let me know who you really liked hearing on the pod this year and who you want to hear on the show coming up in 2021. We've already got a couple in the can. We've got a lot scheduled and I'm really excited about some of the guests we're going to bring you. This show, it's been so fun to watch it grow, to, to connect with listeners every week and to have guests on. Uh, I, I enjoy doing it so much. Um, but I also, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say thank you because it really does mean a lot that people are willing to take an hour of their week and and listen to the show and kind of share it with with me and a guest and uh, I am deeply, deeply appreciative to everyone who's listened this year. I know, like I said, it's been a tough year for a lot of people, but hopefully, uh, this, this podcast has been able to offer some moments of, of levity and hopefully we can continue to do that in the 2021 and beyond. So thank you everyone who's listening. Thank you to all my guests and listen, Hey, if you like the show, I know I always say it, but it really does help. And I like reading them. Even the one star reviews that called me a CNN love loving city boy. Uh, Leave me a review over an Apple podcast. Thanks, everyone. Enjoy your New Year's Eve weekend, and we'll see you in 2021. Bye, everyone. All right, everyone, that is it for this episode of Listed on the Ironclad Content Network. Hey, if you like the show, I know every podcast asks you to do it, but it really does help. If you like the show, leave a rating and review. I really appreciate it. All right, guys, we'll see you next time.